I saw, for example, recently a young man. He had been in Bangkok, and he had some GI upset, nothing too bad. And he said, oh, by the way, I ate some barbecued bat on a stick. Is that a problem? And I said, oh, goodness. Uh, well, at least tell me it was well cooked. And he said, oh, no, no. It was almost raw. It was juicy, bloody, really tasty with some spice. And that's problematic because mammals can transmit rabies. And I think he ended up spending about $2,500 on rabies post-exposure treatment. Welcome to the Merck Manual's Medical Myths Podcast, where we set the record straight on today's most talked about medical topics and questions. On every episode, we'll hear stories from the front lines of medical care to help dispel common myths and answer some of the questions you've been itching to ask your doctor. And remember, you can always find more information on this week's topic and hundreds of others on MerckManuals.com. Now, here's your host, Editor-in-Chief of the Merck Manuals, Dr. Robert Porter. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Porter, Editor-in-Chief of the Merck Manuals, one of the world's most trusted medical resource. On this episode, we welcome Dr. Christopher Sanford, Associate Professor in the Departments of Family Medicine and Global Health at the University of Washington. His guide for travelers, Staying Healthy Abroad, a Global Traveler's Guide, just published in December. Dr. Sanford also authors the travel health sections of the Merck Manual. Rob, thanks so much for having me as a guest today. We're so glad you could join us today, Dr. Sanford. Now, when people are planning a trip abroad, uh, a lot of people have visions of embracing local customs, eating unique and exotic foods, and having new experiences. I mean, the last good trip I took was to New Zealand, and I did bungee jumping and jet boat riding. But then there's other people who are just worried about traveling abroad, and they're so concerned that they even hesitate to leave their big chain hotel, much less go off on uh, adventure. So Dr. Sanford is here to help us figure out what's the right balance of risk versus worry when people are getting ready for trips and while they're traveling. I think travel is almost always a good idea. So I think many people are concerned, especially when they go to low-income countries, that they're intrinsically dangerous which I don't think is true, but I think most of the risk to the extent it is there is determined by what you do and by what you don't do, not so much where you go to. What kinds of things might somebody do that would get them into trouble? Uh, How about my bungee jumping? (laughs) I have not uh, read extensively in the bungee jumping literature. I, I don't do it myself. I don't think injuries are real common. Um, The things that are more common would be more mundane things like automobile accidents and motorcycle accidents. In terms of embracing what the locals do, some people think, oh, it's the way it's done there, so it's safe, but you need to judge these on a case-by-case basis. And as a general rule, if something is unsafe at home, it's also unsafe abroad. And this would be, for example, um, riding a motorcycle without a helmet, or riding on the roof of a bus, or riding on the, the roof of a train. Some people want to join the locals, but it's dangerous here, and it's also dangerous for the locals to do that around the world. So then traumatic injury is maybe a bigger concern than some of the exotic infectious diseases. Well, you know, very much, uh, sort of counterintuitively. When I see someone for a pre-travel encounter, I certainly talk about the appropriate infectious topics. So we talk about immunizations and bug bite avoidance and malaria medication when appropriate. But I always leave time to talk about things like car crash avoidance, because when you look at the rare bad things that happen to travelers, things like car crashes are much more common than serious illness from infectious disease. 
What about people who have a medical condition and are trying to travel? The good news is that most people with most medical problems can go to most destinations. So if someone has anything from diabetes to epilepsy, as long as the condition is well controlled at home, I think it's reasonable to travel to most destinations. But some additional preparations may be uh, necessary. So, for example, if someone has coronary artery disease or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, they can travel, but maybe they would have limitations on high altitude or on hiking. Another uh, exclusion would be it's absolutely a bad idea for any pregnant woman at any stage of pregnancy to scuba dive. Uh, It can be bad for the fetus, bad for the mom. So uh, in pregnancy, you can snorkel, but I would not scuba dive if you're pregnant or potentially pregnant. Um, Also, if a condition is not well controlled, you know, if someone is in the emergency room once a month, then it's probably not a good idea to go to low-income countries where there can be significantly less medical care. Wow, that's interesting, Dr. Sanford. So we're talking about the special cases. Let's add a different one to that. What about extremes of age? Travel for the really young, uh, young, young infants and the, the elderly. Do they have special considerations? You bet. Um, babies below certain ages can't get vaccines for certain illnesses, so they're a little elevated risk of some infectious things. It's a case-by-case basis. If I see someone who's very young, the most important thing I talk about is something like a car seat, because as with adults, their biggest risk is not infectious, but it's things like car crashes. Elderly people tend to be um, a little more frail, but increasingly people who are in their 80s and beyond are going around the world. And not infrequently see people who are in their late 80s going on safari. And most of the time I say, this sounds like a great idea and, and how can I help? They should take a few things with them. They should take all their medications, of course, with them, and they should pack that in their carry-on, not their checked luggage. And all medications should be uh, labeled and left in the original bottle so there's no questions at, uh, at customs. If somebody has a chronic cardiac condition, then it's a good idea to take a copy of a recent EKG so that if there's any uh, episode or need for medical care, the doc can compare that to the one back home. I wish patients in America would keep their medicines in the original <laughs> containers. I know many times in the ER I ask a patient, well, what are you taking? And they pull out one bottle with eight different colored pills in it. And I take the pink one in the morning and the blue one at the afternoon. And it's not a bad idea if someone has a somewhat complex medical history to take a one-page summary, either that they've written up or that their doctor has written up, with uh, a list of medical conditions and medications. And I guess all the relevant phone numbers for their clinicians so that caregivers abroad could contact them if they need. You bet, and if appropriate, fax numbers and emails. One prominent travel myth is that if you stay at a really fancy hotel or you're only traveling for a day or two on business, that you're not really at any any risk. Is that true? Well, certainly not. And certainly risk is dependent on duration of stay. So a short stay person has lower risk, but not so low that you want to um, not do the usual precautions. There have been studies on where people get diarrhea, and not only does a five-star hotel not reduce your risk of traveler's diarrhea, but some studies show that it may actually slightly elevate it uh, relative to a uh, standard routine. That may be due to the phenomenon of the buffet where you have 40 mystery liquids bubbling under the lights all day, and that's a pretty good way to grow different bacteria. Uh, Something else to avoid. 
Let's talk about getting ready for a trip. Certainly the first thing I think of with a trip is shots. What kind of immunizations do people need to think about? Well, of course, it depends where they're going. For the whole planet, I recommend the standard U.S. schedule as put out by the CDC. So even if someone is going one state over, or even if they're not, I think it's a good idea to be current on the standard schedule. A lot of people come into me, and the first thing they want to talk about is the travel vaccines, and that would include things like typhoid fever and yellow fever. But the first thing I want to talk about when it comes to vaccines are the domestic standard vaccines, because when you look at what illnesses people get when they have not been vaccinated for anything, the things on the routine schedule are actually much more common than the travel vaccines. So, for example, in people who've had no vaccines and they travel, by far the two most common vaccine-preventable illnesses are influenza and hepatitis A. And especially influenza, but also recently hepatitis A, are both on the routine U.S. schedule. So the first thing to do is to do all the domestic things, and that actually will give you a significant amount of, uh, of protection. But then other ones I commonly talk about would include typhoid fever, which is probably the most common of the travel vaccines that I give, but also depending on itinerary and activities, yellow fever, Japanese encephalitis, and one or two more. Okay, so people really need to talk to the doctor based on where they're going so you can guide them. And a helpful thing to bring in when they see the doc, yes, they do, is um, their past vaccines because the computer systems in the U.S. don't talk to each other such that if you've been seen somewhere besides my university, I may not have your vaccine record, and that can entail to a lot of guessing or duplication. So bring your vaccine record in. Also take your itinerary. Some people say, oh, my spouse um, scheduled the trip. I'm going somewhere to Southeast Asia. And that helps me less than knowing names of countries, names of cities, um, and exact dates. Because, for example, in Thailand, there's malaria in some areas and not malaria in some areas. So I really need to know pretty exactly where people are going to if I want to address that problem accurately. What should people know about malaria prevention when they're traveling abroad? How do they deal with that? Malaria, it's a protozoan illness, a one-celled organism. It's spread by mosquitoes. It's a life-threatening illness, and it's present in about 100 countries around the world. It's a, a fair uh, generalization to say it's present everywhere in or near the tropics. And um, it's life-threatening, and if you don't take a medication and you go where there's malaria, you may get malaria, uh, which, which kills people. So I recommend that they take a medication. There's medications... Um, that these days are fairly low side effect, and they take the medication and they don't get malaria. Which medication they take depends on where they're going to. There's two big categories of malaria. There's chloroquine sensitive and chloroquine resistant. Um, used to be 50 years ago, chloroquine worked everywhere in the whole planet. Now it only works in about 10 countries. But for most of the world, most of Latin America, most of Africa, most of Asia, we have to give one of three drugs uh, to prevent chloroquine resistant malaria. Do people have to start taking malaria medicine before they go? They do. Each of these is taken a, a brief duration before they enter the malaria area. How long depends on which medication. So, for example, if they're going to a chloroquine-sensitive area, such as Haiti, and they're taking a chloroquine, they need to start one to two weeks before they go. If they're taking malarone, uh, which is one of the drugs for chloroquine-resistant uh, malaria, they need to start one or two days before they enter the area, in addition to taking it once a day while they're there and then also for seven days after they leave. But each drug has its particular schedule. 
So we've been talking about prescription preventatives. What can people take in their own personal medical kit that they can just get on their own? Well, quite a few things. Um, I always travel. I go to uh, Uganda every year to teach in a tropical medicine course. And most drugs that I use here, a little over-the-counter the things, are not available in most of the world. So think about drugs you've used in the last 12 months. Have you used hydrocortisone cream for a rash? Have you taken ibuprofen uh, for a headache? Anything like that you'll want to pack with you uh, of an over-the-counter nature. So those would be a few things, but I take, you know, an antifungal cream, an anti-inflammatory cream, maybe an antibiotic cream, Tylenol, Advil, maybe some uh, diphenhydramine, which is an antihistamine, just for things that may come up. I take some Band-Aids and such. I sort of think I don't take a ton. This whole kit might end up weighing one pound, but I think what are the most common things that would happen? Uh, and I found that to be very convenient when traveling. How about for diarrhea? Do you recommend people take an anti-diarrheal with them? You bet. I kind of recommend a four-stage plan for diarrhea. For your basic healthy traveler, I don't recommend anything preventatively. Although, if you want to take something preventatively, um, actually Pepto-Bismol works, uh, bismuth subsalicylate. But you have to take two pills four times a day for the entire trip, and it reduces your risk of diarrhea. But it's tough to remember something four times a day, plus you get a black tongue, which looks kind of weird. In terms of what I recommend is that you take nothing if you feel good. For mild diarrhea, a very good drug is loperamide, uh, sold under the brand name Imodium. It's what we call a gut antimotility agent. Makes you a little tired, slows down your gut. It's good for mild diarrhea. If you get bad diarrhea, watery diarrhea, diarrhea so bad it limits your activities, you can take one or two drugs. You can take Imodium by itself, but you can also add an antibiotic. And one we commonly prescribe for that is azithromycin. Um, and the final stage in the plan is if you're sicker than usual with something like blood in your stool or fever or bad abdominal pain, then don't take the loperamide and probably do see a doctor because then we're not sure we're just dealing with routine traveler's diarrhea. How can you rehydrate, especially if you're supposed to avoid the water? Generally, you can rehydrate with pretty much anything safe. That would be bottled water or even soda pop or weak tea. I would avoid tap water for that. Now, an exception would be people at the extremes of age. So babies and, say, people over age 65 indeed can get depleted of electrolytes, and they might do better with oral rehydration solution per se. But for healthy adults outside of the extremes of age, you can rehydrate with pretty much anything, but you should drink a lot, uh, you know, several glasses to the point of where your urine is close to uh, colorless. Should parents travel with some packets of oral rehydration solution if they have young children? You know, if they're traveling with a kid under age two, I would. You can mix it on the spot. Um, there's recipes for that, but you can also take the packets where some uh, parents find uh, convenient. How about long-distance jet travel? Is dehydration a concern there? Well, again, it depends on what you do, but for many people, yes. A lot of people uh, treat jet travel like a party, and instead, I would encourage people to treat it like a uh, endurance athletic event, by which I mean wear comfortable clothes, drink a lot of water, sleep when you can, uh, and stay well hydrated. The air on a jet is very dry, and so uh, you can get a little dehydrated. So drinking water, avoiding alcoholic drinks, can make people feel a lot better when they get to their destination. Thanks, Chris. Let's stop here for a quick break and a few words about the Merck Manuals. Thank you.
Today, MerckManuals.com is the best first place to go for information on hundreds of medical topics. And do you want to hear the best part? There's no sign-in required, and we won't clutter your inbox with emails. Now, back to Dr. Porter and the Merck Manuals Medical Myths Podcast. We're back with Dr. Christopher Sanford. When people are taking their medications overseas, are there any concerns about medications being restricted in some countries that are perfectly valid here? For most travelers, most of their medications, there are no issues. Like I say, uh, keep them in the original containers, but most, you know, anything from an antibiotic to a blood pressure medication is usually fine. It is a good idea to go onto a website and check it out before you go because there are a few idiosyncratic rules. So, for example, Adderall, um, amphetamine, dextroamphetamine, which is taken for attention deficit disorder, is illegal in a number of countries around the world. And there's some quirky stuff, like coming up in 2020, the Olympics are going to be in Tokyo, and a lot of people are going to be going there. A good place to find out information is just put in Japanese consulate or Japanese embassy, and this nice statement comes up in English. But one of the over-the-counter things they ban there is pseudoephedrine, which is for head colds. It's the active ingredient in both Actifed and Sudafed, but it's banned. They will take it away from you at a minimum. So it's better to read that in advance so that you're not, um, you're not startled when you get there. Things you have to be careful of would be something like a large number of narcotic pills. So if you have a chronic pain condition and you're taking a controlled opiate, a pain pill, you probably want to take a letter from your doctor explaining how many pills, what duration, and what you're taking it for. Because if there's any suspicion of you using that recreationally, you're going to spend more time with customs than you want to. Well, that's important to know. I think the last time I went to Japan on business, I did have pseudoephedrine in my medical kit, so I'm glad they didn't search me. Oh, I was going to say, you could have done uh, time in prison. Yeah. No, I'm exaggerating. They don't do that, but they will take it away from you and frown at you and give you a lecture. Now, one of the problems that I often face when I'm traveling some distance is jet lag. What, what advice can you give our listeners about jet lag? Jet lag is really common when you travel more than, say, three or four time zones away from home. And we all know it. We've all been there. You feel spacey for a few days. You get tired at the wrong time. You're wide awake at the wrong time. goes away in a few days if you do nothing, but it's kind of bothersome. Strategies to deal with it include doing nothing and just letting it go away, taking something over the counter like melatonin, and then there's a really complicated thing most people don't do where you actually alter the waking and going to bed times that you're uh, before you leave to try to match those of your destination. But like I say, most people are busy before a trip and don't have time to do that sort of thing. A couple of things that I recommend is either nothing, which is reasonable, or melatonin, which is sold by uh, health food stores. Another thing that's reasonable to do for a few nights is something like Ambien. Um, it's a, a prescription-only medication that causes sleepiness, and some people find benefit if they take that for a few nights at bedtime at their destination. Similarly, if they take melatonin, they can take that once a day at uh, their destination at bedtime for a few nights. Some people uh, get benefit from that and some people don't, but it's reasonable to try. When people come to see you before a trip, what's their usual level of understanding on how they're going to pay for medical care? Do a lot of them assume that their insurance covers them? Uh, a lot of people do make that assumption. Some people ask me. Um, the rules are different per insurance plan. For example, Medicare doesn't cover care outside the United States. 
a really good thing to do is to call the member services phone number on your insurance card if you have insurance and see if you're covered or not. And some do and some don't. Some want you to bring the receipts back and some don't. So they're all different. It's a good idea to get a couple types of insurance. Suppose your, your insurance does not cover you out of the country, which is common. It's a good idea to buy a temporary insurance plan, both for medical care and often a separate plan for emergency medical evacuation. Some airline tickets include that, a lot don't. But suppose you're in Kenya and you're in a car crash and you break your femur, the, the big bone in the thigh. It could easily be 75000 or $100,000 to fly you to a high-income country for treatment. It's better to sign up with a company in advance. You pay a little money, and that way if you need immediate medical care and evacuation, they pay for it at no additional charge. Yeah, that would be a bill you wouldn't want to get. Yeah, no joke. Now, we're both physicians, so we tend to focus on the medical aspects of uh, travel and, and other issues. But with your experience in travel, what do you like to tell your patients about non-medical things they should be aware of while they're traveling? Yeah, it's a good idea to read about where you're going to. Uh, part of the fun of traveling is that people have different assumptions and different patterns of behavior around the world. But if you don't know them in the place you're going to, you can commit a faux pas or worse. So I think it's a really good idea anytime you leave the country, uh, especially when you leave the high-income nations, to get a guidebook. For example, the Lonely Planet series is a good series, or Fromers. But most of those have sections on appropriate social interactions, and there's a million little rules that are not intuitive around the world. Uh, for example, if you're in Asia and giving somebody your business card, it's good manners to do it with two hands, not with one hand. Uh, if you're in a Muslim-majority country, dressing conservatively is a good idea. And if a woman goes into a mosque, um, dress uh, covering her hair uh, is a must. So again, I think some reading uh, in advance is a good idea. Or if you're part of the LGBTQ community, it's a good idea to read how friendly or unfriendly the country is, because whereas Western Europe is often very inclusive, um, a lot of African, both Saharan and Sub-Saharan African countries are not, and it's good to know that before you go. Now, some people enjoy eating local delicacies and local foods. Uh, are you an adventurous eater when you travel? You know, good question. Um, the short answer is no. I'm a pretty boring eater. Um, I follow the, the standard advice, which is, you know, you've heard that rule, boil it, peel it, cook it, or forget it. And so things that I avoid would include tap water once I'm outside of the high-income countries. So I will drink tap water in France or Germany, but not in most of Africa, uh, most of Latin America. I avoid roadside stands, uh, lettuce and salads, raw food. I like sushi, but I eat it in the United States. And also ice. Ice does not kill most microorganisms. Um, so I avoid those things. What's the most unusual thing you've ever eaten abroad? Well, I... Uh, met with doctors in China in a couple cities, and they fed me at nice restaurants, and I distrusted them, and I, frankly, I ate everything that was put in front of me. And I remember having chewy jellyfish and crisp jellyfish and other things that I wasn't sure what were. But if you're with hosts at a nice place like that, I don't know, it's a personal call, but my thought is it's unlikely your host is going to give you something that's going to be at high risk to give you diarrhea. Yeah, my rule in those situations uh, is 
just not ask what it is. If the other people are eating it, I eat it, and um, we're all happier that way. One time I was traveling in India, and at that time on the street, there were vendors who had hand-cranked presses, and they had a little wagon load of sugar cane sitting there, a bucket with a big chunk of ice in it, and some limes. And that looked to me like the best drink in the world because it was summer, it was hot, we were thirsty. And it was, took all my willpower to not drink that limeade. So what are some, some things people have eaten when they travel abroad that are trouble? Well, I one part of my practice which I enjoy is I do post-travel medicine. So if somebody gets a fever or a rash or diarrhea or something else abroad, uh, they will tend to see me in consultation when they come back. And one part of that that I enjoy hearing is I get to hear what people did abroad that was, let's just call it eccentric or something I wouldn't have done. I saw, for example, recently a young man. He had been in Bangkok, and he had some GI upset, nothing too bad. And he said, oh, by the way, I ate in Bangkok some barbecued bat on a stick. Is that a problem? And I said, oh, goodness, uh, well, at least tell me it was well-cooked. And he said, oh, no, no, it was almost raw. It was juicy, bloody, really tasty with some spice. And that's problematic because not just to the diarrhea risk, but because um, a bat is a mammal, and mammals can transmit rabies. And so after a lot of talk with him, we actually had to start, both gave him a shot of rabies immune globulin, which was expensive, and a whole rabies series, which was expensive. And I think he ended up spending about $2,500 on rabies post-exposure treatment. So in general, if things are well-cooked, they're safe. You know, heat boiling kills pretty much anything. That's a great story and a good example of why it's important to watch what you eat when traveling abroad. We like to close out our episodes by asking our guests their three major takeaways for listeners. So what are the biggest things you'd like for everyone to remember? The first would be that risk is more determined by what you do than by where you go. So I think it's reasonable to travel to about 99% of the planet, um, and you can make almost any destination safe or unsafe by what you do. So just keep in your mind that you are still the master of your fate, and that your behavior will determine if, if you're safe or not. My second point would be that to the extent there is risk abroad, that the non-infectious causes are actually the ones to be more concerned about. So I think something like a seatbelt or for a kid, a car seat is actually about the most important thing to talk about. Helmets when you ride a bike, that kind of thing. A safety a flotation device when you swim if you're not a good swimmer. My third and final point would be that travel is almost always a good idea. I consider myself a travel enabler. In the great majority of time when I see someone, regardless of where they're going, I will end up saying, that sounds like a great idea, and how can I help you do that? I think that I and a lot of my travelers who I see find that travel is one of the most enriching activities in their lives, and I uh, try to facilitate the process whenever I can. So that's a lot of really good, useful information. I certainly learned a couple of things, and maybe you could tell our listeners where they could go to get some, some more information or see this in print. A really good one is the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They have a lovely website, cdc.gov. Hit the button that says Traveler's Health, and you can search that either by country that you're going to or by medical problem. But it's very lucid, high-grade, evidence-based information on everything from diarrhea to malaria to dengue fever. Another site that I give people is state.gov. 
It's the U.S. State Department, and they have a statement on every country in the world on crime, security, terrorism. And it's pretty pragmatic advice. It has ways like to enlist in their program so that they know that you're there and just sort of places in town to avoid and things like that. And then a final site that I give people, there's a Canadian nonprofit called IAMAT, I-A-M-A-T, International Association for Medical Assistance to Travelers, and there uh, they give a listing of English-speaking doctors that are certified in countries around the world. So it's a good place to find a high-quality medical provider should you need care when you're abroad. And, of course, there's the uh, Merck Manuals website, which is merckmanuals.com. It has high-quality information on essentially every medical topic, but it has uh, Chapters 2 on uh, travel medicine. And I'd like to mention that if you want to hear more of what Dr. Sanford knows about travel is his new book, Staying Healthy Abroad, A Global Traveler's Guide. So that will contain a lot of the things that we've talked about today. So thanks, Dr. Sanford, for your time and expertise. I think we've learned a whole lot about travel and getting ready for it. And remember, as we say at the Merck Manuals, Medical knowledge is power. Pass it on. Thank you.